Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the War podcast. We are continuing our deep dive into the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are beginning chapter 7. Um, we are slowly but surely getting through this book, and uh, as we've continued to see time and time again, Ecclesiastes is hard. Uh, these are not easy passages. They are challenging passages that they hit us between the eyes. And so we are going to continue being hit between the eyes as we get to chapter 7. And we're going to talk about the first six verses today. Reading out of the Christian Standard Bible, it says, A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. Grief is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools, for like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is hevel, is vapor. So once again... Solomon brings us a list of scenarios that sound depressing. We hear something that reminds us very much of Edgar Allan Poe. But Solomon places a direct focus here on negative feelings, on low thoughts, on grim realities. Solomon is wrestling with these things. This is not he's speaking as a, a wise teacher who's arrived. This is somebody who is pouring out his heart trying to find the meaning of things. And he lists a series of things that are that he says are better, turning our logic on his head a bit. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than one's birth. That is an interesting relationship. Um, that That's not something we would necessarily connect logically. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than your birthday. And once again, Solomon is very much taking the position of the cynic here. He is not offering instruction, but rather is philosophically exploring the problems of life under the sun. And the question then is not, why did he say that? But the question is, what does this mean? A good name is better than fine perfume. In the ancient 
um, times, fine perfume was often conflated as a sign of wealth or luxury. So again, we have this, this dynamic of the fallacies of wealth, which he fleshed out very intentionally in chapter 6. James chapter 5 says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and eat your flesh like fire. For you have stored up treasure in the last days. Solomon the wealthy is coming pretty hard against the rich. And once again, we are reminded of death in this discourse on wealth. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death is better than one's birth. Why does he continue beating this drum? It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind. A couple verses uh, later in chapter 7, he says, Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? Once again, through the imagery of wealth and death, we are reminded of our dependence, of our impotence, that we cannot prevent our own deaths. Yet we strive to make life as comfortable as possible, perhaps delay what is inevitable. It is appointed unto all men to die once, and then comes judgment. G.K. Chesterton once noted that the new scientific society definitely discourages men from thinking about death. It is a fact, but it is a it is considered a morbid fact. And again, I throw out that Latin phrase, memento mori, remember, you must die. Solomon puts the focus on our deaths, even when we're still living. Why? It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart, because ethics are eschatological. That's a fancy theological word for the end times, for the way we understand the end times, where things are going. Our ethics tie directly into what we believe about the future. How do we inhabit time in light of how we think it's going to end? How do we inhabit the here and now? How do we move through this world that God has put us in, knowing that we will die, knowing that um, XYZ will happen. One day, Christ will return and make all things new. This is the one of the tenets of the Christian faith. The old will pass away, and as Tolkien once said, everything sad shall then become untrue. So how do we inhabit time in the meantime? What do we do now? One day, Christ will return, and he will make all things new. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for in the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw also the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. 
Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. So we've got these two big texts that paint this picture of the old passing away and the new things being made new, and the glorious future that awaits the people of God. The question of my life, the question of your life, the question every one of us must answer. Not to God, but to ourselves. How do we inhabit time in the meantime? How do we live in a world that is dying? How do we live in a world that is going to pass away and be made new? And I think the answer um, lies in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The heart of the wise is is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. Ecclesiastes 3, 3, chapter 3, verse 1 says, There is an occasion for everything, and a time for every activity under heaven. There is a time for things. There is a time for going to the house of mourning and recognizing that we are not eternal in the sense that God is eternal, that we will experience a physical death. That the life I live in the body will end. There's a, there's a recognition of that that plays into how I, um, how I operate, how I navigate life, knowing that my life is but a, a vapor not in the sense of you only live once, so live as you please, but recognize you will meet your creator in death. And in Christ, that can be a happy reunion as opposed to a pronouncement of judgment. George MacDonald once wrote in a poem, but friends, to say it is cold and part is to let in the cold. We will make a summer of the heart and laugh at winter old. Winter is a part of life. The, the cold is a part of life. Often in poetry, winter is characterized as um, something unpleasant or distant or cold emotionally. And McDonald is obviously building off of that. But the reality is that winter is a part of the cycle. There, there are winters. There are cold seasons. Um, but we still have to live in the winter. We still have to... We still have to live here. Winter is a part of the world God made. And so rather than saying that it's cold and checking out, 
let's find a way to inhabit the winter. Let's look for the good in the cold. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning. The heart, the wise person is in a house of mourning. He's pondering the, the way he lives. In ancient Greece, there was a particular legend, um, and Hercules is sitting under a tree, and he's considering how to live his life. Does he live after um, virtue, after the, the ideals of what man should be, or does he live for vice, for pleasure, for um, individual desires? And they're characterized as two people, a beautiful woman and um, another woman. But um, Virtue is very captivated by her shadow. She's contemplating her shadow the whole time he's um, in their presence. Vain is, uh, Vice is talking a good game. I'm, I'm going to give you everything you want. Um, my friends call me Pleasure. My enemies call me Vice. But Virtue is off to the side contemplating her shadow. And the reason I bring all that into Ecclesiastes is because, in a sense, we are contemplating our shadow in the house of mourning. We are con considering our impact on the world around us, the way that we interact with this world, the way this world interacts with us. Not because we are the end-all, be-all, or we are the determining factor of reality, but because we have to live here. And so let's take the allotted time that we are given on this earth and establish what truly matters. And sow our seeds according to what matters, according to what is good, according to what draws us closer to our maker, because our ethics are eschatological. So let us consider our ethics eschatologically. Galatians 6 says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not, as we have therefore opportunity. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. How, what does that look like? And so that I direct us to the very words of Jesus. Peter Kreeft once commented on the Sermon on the Mount, saying that the greatest sermon ever preached takes only 15 minutes to read and can be printed on a single page, yet it has changed the world more than any other speech ever made. Even Gandhi found nothing in his rich 6,000-year-old Hindu tradition to equal it. Even atheists, agnostics, and humanists testify to its greatness. And what is this sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It was once noted that the Beatitudes of Jesus describe the character of the men who, living under God's fatherly rule, made manifest in Jesus, enjoy happiness even here and now, though its perfection belongs to the heavenly world. Now, the word blessed, um, it's, a, it's a hard word to translate. Um, there's really not a word in English that does it justice. We think, when we as Americans think blessing, we think material possessions and things. But the word blessing, it does mean happy. But it's not a emotional happiness. It's something quantitative. It's something with substance. It is, it is a subjective state of happiness that's not impacted by our emotions. It's a, it's a constant state. Because that is what we enter into through the work of Christ. Christ gives us a new way of seeing these things to where you are happy as one who is poor in spirit who is spiritually bankrupt. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to us who do not come on our own accord, who do not come to Christ with our own accomplishments, but come to Christ with open hands and empty pockets. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. These are the complete opposite of how we tend to think about the world. We don't like to talk about mourning because you know we don't want we want we don't want to be sad, but there's a place for mourning. There's a place for being sad, whether that is mourning the loss of a person or mourning that we are miserable wretches in need of the sovereign grace of God. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the ones who know they are not God, who know they are dependent on God, that apart from him they can do nothing, for they will inherit the new earth. Romans 8 says that we are co-heirs with Jesus if in fact we have the Spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And how will we be filled if we hunger for what is right? We'll be filled by God. We will be filled with God. That's what the word enthu enthusiasm means. And theos, it literally means full of God. Blessed are the mer merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These are the ethics of dying men and women. This is not something that jives with the secular way of looking at the world. That worldview doesn't fit with blessed are the merciful, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are not things that make sense. In a materialistic sense, in a materialistic worldview where all that exists is matter and energy, this makes no sense. This does not compute. These are the ethics of dying men and women. This sermon was given to people who were caught in the dust-to-dust -dust pipeline 
because we came from dust, and dust we will return. But Christ says, I came that you may have life and have it in abundance. And the, the one sermon we've got from Christ who made a living, we spent three years as a, basically as a street preacher. This is the one sermon we have. And it's a big one. These are the, the this is virtue. This is arete. This is the substance of what man should be for people that are dying. For people that are going from dust to dust. This is the way forwards. The way forwards is the way. The truth. The life. Matthew Levering put, put it this way. A dying person can want his or her suffering to end. But as Augustine shows, a dying person cannot truly want to have literally no future. Everlasting non-existence, eternal separation and isolation. Since annihilation causes a great loss due to its everlasting lack of interpersonal communion, fear of annihilation is not egotistical. Such fear simply means that one wishes for interpersonal communion to continue rather than be broken off forever. Since this is so, our great hope can only be God, who encompasses the whole of reality and who can bestow upon us what we by ourselves cannot attain. Deep down, we know there must be more. Deep down, we all have an aversion to um, that materialistic sense that when you die, you die, and that's just that's the end of the story. We all know that there must be more than what is currently before our eyes. There is meaning, there is grandeur, there is hope. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have obtained through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. A couple of chapters later in Romans, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. But if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, that's a strong word right there, mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, of slavery, again to fall back into fear. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness within our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Through Christ, something new is done in us. He counts us as his own, and begins making us new, making us what we weren't before. To the point that that list in Matthew 5 becomes attainable, by the power of God at work in us. The gospel makes us what we aren't. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live unto righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in closing, Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The best use of our time, the best way to inhabit time, in the meantime, is to get to know the God who made time and who gave himself as a ransom for us. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4.